Romans 8, beginning at verse 18. This is God's holy and infallible word. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. That's our scripture reading tonight. Like I had said, there is a lot packed in here. I really think that the first verse, that verse 18, gives us a key to read the rest. There's a, there's a reason that uh, the by the, the off the editors of the NIV have that as one section called future glory. Paul had just written before verse 18 that we share in Jesus' sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So it's coming out of this talk of suffering, and he talks about our present sufferings in verse 18. Christians suffer. It's said that at the Council of Nicaea in 325, where we get the Nicene Creed, it's said that less than 12 of the several hundred delegates, less than 12 had not lost an eye or an arm or did not limp on a leg lamed by torture for their faith. The council is called by Constantine, but... That was, it was just about then that the persecutions were ending because Constantine became a believer. But before then, fierce persecutions. And, you know, sometimes we think uh, we got troubles, things are rough today in the church and in society. But at the CRC Senate the other week, and Corey Van Dyke can attest to that, he was a, to this, if it's true or not, he was a young adult representative. But I can't imagine there's even a single delegate who had even the tiniest physical ailment or problem due to persecution for the faith. And we trust that should that happen one day, if that's the trajectory of things, um, that God would give us the grace to withstand that type of suffering. I can't imagine we would handle it if it just all of a sudden came to us. We're, but, you know, someone supposedly asked C.S. Lewis, why do the righteous suffer? And he 
he's reported as saying, why not? They're the only ones who can take it. And the reality is, I think, God does give us only what we can bear. We, we can handle it in him, whatever it is. Thank the Lord we don't suffer persecution like in the first centuries A.D., but let there be no mistake about the fact that Paul is, knows what he's talking about here. Christians suffer in all kinds of ways. It's part of being a believer. And my experience is that that saying, every house has its cross, my experience is that saying is absolutely true. Many, many homes represented in this sanctuary tonight you're struggling with something, perhaps. So are the homes around you. Every house has its cross. Paul writes, I consider that our present sufferings, and so fill there in your mind all the different ways believers have suffered throughout the centuries. The Roman Empire persecutions, beheadings today, your own personal and family trials, then you'll start to get a sense of the magnitude of what he is saying. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed on us. So the glory to come, referring to eternal life, will outweigh the sufferings and the troubles of the present. And we might think, really? We might ask, Well, why do you consider this, Paul? How can you write this? Well, it seems to me that the rest of these verses unfold how this is true, how it's possible. I believe we're given three pieces of evidence, all of which we experience right now, that prove this glory that awaits us is greater than then our present sufferings. So we're going to take a look. First, there is evidence in creation pointing forward to the glory that will be revealed. We read in verse 19 that the creation waits in eager expectation, kind of a strange thing, for the sons of God to be revealed. The sons of God being revealed, it's referring to something that's going to happen in glory. Maybe it refers to that our sonship and our daughtership will somehow be publicly revealed for the whole world to see. Maybe it refers to us finally and fully being conformed to the likeness of the Son, Jesus. It's tough to totally get that phrase. But the overarching theme in verses 19 to 22 is the evidence in creation about the glory to come. The evidence is what Paul refers to as the current waiting of creation. That creation has been subject to frustration. That it needs to be liberated from the bondage of decay. That creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth. All that stuff he's talking about. And so the Bible teaches something very interesting that the results of sin are not only in us, we're fully aware of that, but somehow the results of sin are in creation. And then we remember what God said back in Genesis 3, 17, cursed is the ground because of you, Adam. It will produce thorns and thistles. 
Romans 8, in these verses, it's one of the rare places in Scripture that's elaborating on that, the results of sin somehow in creation. And, and then it make, makes you wonder, we wonder what we would be like without sin, but what would creation have been like without sin? And how has nature been impacted? It would seem that it's somehow not as beautiful or great as it would have been without, with no sin, right? We read here about the bondage of decay, and that's a very interesting thing. You know, we can't imagine creation, nature, without decay and decomposition. So without sin, then, it seems that perhaps this continual cycle of decay, maybe it wouldn't exist. It seems like, and if you think about it, everything in the universe, we think of it as a cycle, but it's really slowly running down. I mean, even if the sun lasts for millions of years, the trajectory is decay. There's a very, though it's very slow, there's going to be a wearing out until it dies. I've always wondered if, if the tectonic plates existed before the fall. I mean, they're basically... This is a a layperson in terms of science speaking. But they're basically these big cracks in the earth's crust, right? I mean, if sin had a tremendous impact on creation, then couldn't it be the source of those plates and the resulting volcanoes and earthquake activity that causes damage around the world as a result of the fall? I don't think we can easily have the answer to these questions, but somehow... How nature is now, this is not how it would have been without sin. You think of of the beauty and the majesty of of valleys and mountains and the skies and the seas and, and the trees and forests and birds and on and on. And you think, what will this all be when instead of that trajectory of decay, when there's only going to be newness and growth forever. We can't even imagine it. The current groanings and imperfections of nature point us to that glory that we can't even imagine. Like pains of childbirth, says Paul. Labor pains, again, something I'm not an expert on, so I'll be careful. Labor pains are a pointer and evidence of a new birth to come. I know enough to know that. And this new birth that comes after labor pains brings great joy and blessing that you could just never imagine, that little child. The coming new birth of creation and its perfection will be glorious. The glory of creation being liberated And creation sharing in the glorious freedom of the children of God will outshine our present sufferings as a mother's labor pains become a distant 
memory, when she's holding that precious child, our pain will fade too when we enter into the glory of the new creation. There is great, incredible mystery here. We can't grasp it. But there's enough in Scripture to give us these glimpses of of how, how creation has been impacted by the fall and how creation will be transformed from this current groaning and bondage that it experiences too under sin. Secondly, in our verses, this is verses 23 to 25, there's evidence in us of this glory that will be revealed. Paul says, verse 23, not only so, but we ourselves. So he moves from creation to God's people. And the evidence in us is called the first fruits of the Spirit. Though it seems that as believers, we can pray for more of the Spirit and His gifts in our lives. We talked about that a little bit this morning. Lord's Day 45 on prayer. The fact is, every person who believes has the Holy Spirit. He is evidence in us of our salvation. And also, says the Bible, He's a pledge or down payment of our future inheritance. 2 Corinthians 1.22 says, Exactly that. He put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. A month or two ago, I had to put in a deposit at Timothy Christian. That initial small payment guaranteed my girls a spot, preschool, third grade, seventh grade, 10th grade. A greater payment will come. The first fruits of the spirit now guarantee a greater payoff to come to our receiving our full inheritance. What are those first fruits? What are we experiencing? What in us? What's the evidence? Well, Paul talks of us groaning inwardly as we wait for eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And that's kind of interesting. What's that about? We, don't we have that adoption already? As Pastor Matthew talked about last Sunday night, we are adopted. We're in God's family that can't be changed. Complete security when we're adopted into the Father's family. But we don't yet have the complete family resemblance, do we? I know I don't. I sometimes show the characteristics of my old nature. And as Paul says in Chapter 7, it creeps up a whole lot more than I want it to in my life. There's something missing in our Christian experience right now. That's the groaning. We're not there. We doubt. We struggle. We sin. And don't we long for that incompleteness to be made complete sometimes? Full adoption complete redemption of our bodies. In glory, we'll be made full family members in the sense that our Father's family traits will be perfectly seen in us. And now, we're gradually starting to experience that freedom from the effects of sin and death. We're slowly but surely, we're becoming more like Jesus. 
the freedom from sin, the progress that we do enjoy sometimes, that's just a taste of the complete freedom in glory. We wait patiently, eagerly, says Paul, knowing that the pain of sin, its results will pass. We can wait patiently and eagerly knowing that this life is not all there is, that a greater glory is coming, and that, you know what, for each one of us, as God's children, our best days lie ahead of us. We belong to Jesus. We have a bright future. It's as bright as the glory that will be revealed. And it will happen. The first fruits in us, says God's word, are a guarantee of the complete, full harvest that's going to come. There's finally a third piece of evidence, and it's the intercessory work of the Holy Spirit. This is verses 26 and 27. An intercessor is someone who goes between. We a lot of times talk about Jesus as our great intercessor, the intercessor between us and God. The Spirit is also an intercessor, according to verses 26 and 27, especially in terms of prayer. The Spirit gives us special help in this current situation we're in of the groaning, the weakness, the incompleteness. When we don't know what to pray for, he intercedes. He searches our hearts. He brings worthy prayers to the Father, prayers that are in line with God's plan and God's purpose. I've had people say to me in various times, when they're in, in a struggle that they don't know, they're in a situation where they don't know what to pray for and they feel stuck, they can't pray because of what's going on in life. This wonderful work of the Spirit means we can pray even in those situations when we don't know what to pray, when we're stuck. Have you ever had times like that in your life? The present sufferings of God's children that Paul talks about can lead to times where, where God's children are hurting so much that we can't even think straight. And we certainly can't articulate prayer with any kind of coherence. You know, sometimes we watch or read the news. I take that back. Anytime we watch or read the news, we see tremendous evil in the world. We see problems all over the place. And as children of God, it troubles us. We're troubled, and rightly so. And sometimes we just we cry out to the Lord and ask, why? And we pray, Lord, I'm at a complete loss here. I don't even know what to say. Well, the Spirit brings our very incomplete, inadequate incoherent prayers up to the Father. And for those internal struggles of the soul, 
our doubting, our, our lack of faith and assurance, or that obstacle in our life or that we see in the life of a loved one that just is completely insurmountable. I encourage you to do what you can to express yourself to the Lord in prayer, but, but trust that the Spirit brings your heart to the Father in the midst of your weakness. So the Spirit's help in our current state of weakness anticipates a day when sin and imperfection and troubles won't come between us and God anymore, but instead will be in God's presence and will be able to perfectly express our hearts. And in that day of glory, I think those expressions will be all of wonder and awe and thanksgiving and praise as those troubles and problems and present sufferings more and more become a distant memory when we reach glory. In these three evidences, there is a lot of participation of the Holy Spirit. And that makes sense because chapter 8 is filled with talk about the Holy Spirit. What we're discussing tonight is, is one way to look at it is what we sometimes call the already, this tension in the Christian life, always. The already and the not yet. We experience God's blessings and His promises already now, but yet, not yet full and perfectly. One person that I read said that it's especially the Holy Spirit who connects our already with the not yet. He is especially at work helping us anticipate what we don't yet have fully, what we don't yet see, that hope of glory, and he helps us wait for it patiently through the present day. The same Spirit who Genesis 1 says hovered over the waters at creation when all was still good. He did not flee when the fall happened. He didn't leave this earth. The Spirit remained. He did not leave creation. He remains in and through creation's groaning, and He will all the way through to the new creation. And he works through the history of humankind, working in the hearts of God's people. He led salvation history to the coming of Jesus. And then he went out after the empty grave at Pentecost to gather God's church, empowering and filling his people so that we today experience the first fruits of God's creation. And he helps us in our relationship with the Father and it will help us all the way to the end when we will share in Christ's glory. It's especially the evidence of His work that we see in creation, in us, in prayer, and in all of it, He's leading us to a great day ahead, the new creation. The glory that God says, and this is another mystery, that, that right back to that first verse 18, the glory that God says will be revealed in us. In us somehow. 
May God grant you in your life the hope of glory as you experience his work in your hearts and lives today and as you go out filled with him, living for him this week. Amen.